Well, welcome back. Last week we kicked off our new series looking at Job, talking about this idea of the theology of suffering, how it is that we seek to suffer well as followers of Christ. And so we're going to be using the book of Job to journey through his experience and examine what it looks like to suffer, how we handle it when suffering comes our way, where is God in the midst of our suffering and our pain. And so last week we got to see the beginning of Job's journey unfold as he was turned over to Satan. Job was considered righteous. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered Job? And we watched as Job lost his children, as he lost his livestock, and as eventually in chapter 2 he also began to get sores all over his body. Because Satan had told the Lord, well Job only follows you because you protect him. He's only righteous because you've put a shield around him, a hedge of protection around him. And so God let that go so we could see if Job would be righteous, if Job would stay true to the Lord. And so Job, in the midst of this, suffers great loss. And that's what we talked about last week as we jumped into this series. And today we're going to continue our journey looking at how Job begins to respond in this time of suffering. Before we jump in, let's pray together. Gracious God, we come before you and your word humbly this morning. Lord, we seek to learn from you, that you would guide us and that you would lead us in understanding of your word, in clarity of your truths, Lord, so that our lives would be shaped around them, that they would be foundational to who we are as your followers. And so, Lord, may you guide this time together today. Lord, may you open up our ears and soften our hearts that we would hear your word and have understanding as to how to apply it to our lives. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. Lord, that nothing that I say would get in the way of what you wish to declare, but may you be glorified here today. I pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Well, if you turn on the news or pick up a newspaper or jump online to any news source, it doesn't take long to find evidence that we live in a fallen world. If you even just look at the last couple weeks, you see just the magnitude of destruction. There was an earthquake in Turkey where the account at this point is 44,000 people have died. There are news reports of murders that are on trial, of uh, continued war between Russia and the Ukraine. Death and destruction is a weekly, if not daily, event in the news. The news gives us a peek to see the suffering that is around us. The fact that we live in a fallen world that is full of sin. And the reality for us is that suffering is inescapable in this fallen world. At some point in your life, you will experience some type of suffering. Now, there's a spectrum of that. You may never experience suffering in the way that Job has, and you always can probably find someone else who you can look to and say, well, their suffering is greater than mine, but that doesn't mean that you won't have to endure hardships and suffering, that you won't have to go through trials in your life. The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon experienced great suffering in his life. Many people don't know that. They just think of him as this wonderful preacher, but his body was slumped beneath the pain of gout and kidney disease. He struggled with depression, and he found himself later in life in the midst of theological battles with his peers. It was during this time that he wrote these words. He said, I commenced these daily portions when I was waiting in the surf of controversy, Since then I have been cast into the waters to swim in, 
which but for God's upholding hand would have proven waters to drown in. I have endured tribulation from many fails, sharp bodily pain, succeeded mental depression, and this would accompany by both bereavement and affliction in the person of one dear as life, his wife Susanna. He says, the waters rolled in continually, wave upon wave. I do not mention this to exact sympathy, but simply to let the reader see that I am no dry land sailor. I have traversed these oceans, which are not Pacific, full many a time. I know the roll of the billows and the rush of the winds. Never were the promises of Jehovah so precious to me as at this hour. Some of them I never understood till now. I had not reached the date at which they matured, for I was not myself mature enough to perceive their meaning. Spurgeon wrote this at 53, just four years before he passed away. Suffering is part of our life living in a fallen, broken world. A world that won't be fully restored this side of heaven. And Spurgeon in that quote gives us a picture of how Christians can properly navigate suffering as we endure, as he speaks of God's upholding hand and the promises of Jehovah. Looking today at Job chapter 3, we're going to be looking at what's considered by many to be one of the most depressing and gloomy chapters in all of Scripture. So get ready for it because it is a tough one. It is difficult, and yet we are going to tackle it together because it's important, because it's part of the narrative of suffering that Job endures. And it's part of how you and I can learn that when we endure suffering as well, that Christ is still with us and that we can endure it by fixing our eyes upon him. So if you would turn with me to Job chapter 3, we're going to be spending our time looking at this chapter. Now just to remind us of how chapter 2 ended before we jump into chapter 3, Chapter 2, verse 11 tells us that now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from their own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bilidad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. They made an appointment together to come and show sympathy to him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. What a gift that Job has, these friends. And while these friends often are criticized as we move forward in the book of Job for how they speak toward him or how they encourage him or don't encourage him at times and place blame upon him, it's a gift that his friends are there with him. That he has these three friends who stop what they're doing and come to be with him, to mourn with him. This is a picture of the traditional seven days of mourning as they just sit with Job. They're not telling him what to do. They're not trying to comfort him with their words. They are just present with him in his suffering for seven days, not speaking. And this leads us to Job chapter 3, where Job breaks the silence of the seven days. And this is what he says, picking up in chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. 
Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Levithathen. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none. Nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the door of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. See, I told you it was gloomy and dark. And if you've never read Job before, you may be a little bit shocked, thinking, wow, this is there in Scripture. And yet Job chooses to break the seven-day silence after all his suffering. These are the words that he chooses to speak. This is how he responds to what he has been through. This is how he breaks the silence of mourning. And what Job opens up with here provides us with a picture into his pain, into his hurt. Job directs his anger at two events. He doesn't direct his anger at God for what has occurred, but he really directs his anger at two events that made his life possible, his conception and his birth. So rather than ridicule God or place the blame upon God for what has occurred, he more places the blame upon the fact that he was even born. And we see here the question of why does Job curse his birth? Well, when we look in the text, we know that it's because he's gone through immense suffering. That Job, at this moment, probably feels quite hopeless. He imagines that it would have been easier had he just never been born. He needs to speak in this moment. He needs to utter something, but Job, because he is a righteous man, doesn't want to speak critically of God. So he turns that criticism upon himself and upon his birthday. Now, birthdays are usually a joyous event. This last week, we celebrated my daughter Hadassah's birthday, and it was a joyful event. There was smiles and laughters and singing and presents, and it's something that usually people think of fondly as a birthday. Even if we maybe don't want to get older, we usually still think of that day of celebration as a joyous occasion. And part of that joy is also looking forward for what the next year will bring. But Job doesn't want any of this. His agony runs too deep in this moment to comprehend the future or to think of any kind of celebration around his life. For him, it would be far easier if he had just never been born. And so that's what we see Job crying out here. He curses the day of his birth. He wishes that it would perish that it would just be no more. He desires that rather than light, which is equated with life, that his birthday would turn to darkness, that he would never have been born, that never would have seen the light, but that would have been claimed by darkness. He doesn't want to rejoice over it or celebrate it or even recall it. And he says right there in the text, let it not be counted or found with joy. What a dark picture of someone's birthday and someone's life, and yet it gives us a visual of how Job is feeling in this moment. He has lost almost everything. His children have died, his livestock, his servants are gone. His body is covered with sores. His wife has told him, just curse God and die and be done with it. And yet Job, even in his pain, even in his suffering, he still won't curse God. 
But the outpouring of that suffering and that grief, rather than turning upon God with his grief, is that he just wishes he had never been born. This would be far easier for Job if he had never existed and thus would not have to go through the suffering that he is experiencing. Job's day of birth began a pathway that's led him to where he is at today, to what he is experiencing, and thus he wishes that just never would have existed. That would have been the easier path for him. And while Job has not cursed God or even blamed God for his suffering that he's enduring, it doesn't mean that he doesn't have questions. His pain moves into lament as he brings his questions forward here in verse 11. Look at what it says in verse 11. Job says, Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept, and then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Job moves in our text from this sense of a curse around his day of birth to a series of questions a lament of his sorrows. And you may be wondering, well, what does that word lament mean? Mark Vrogrop in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercies, Discovering the Grace of Lament, which is a fabulous book. If you are journeying through suffering, if you're struggling with something where you're suffering in your life, I would encourage you to read that book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. But he describes lament as a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It is not only how Christians grieve, it is the way Christians praise God through their sorrows. Lament is a pathway to praise when life gets hard. The Psalms are full of laments. Over a third of the official songbook of God's people uses this minor key language to wrestle honestly with the complicated contours of pain. The journey, however, does more than struggle. Lament uses the honest rehearsing of grief in order to deepen our confidence in God's grace. You see, lament is not just complaining. It's not just airing all of our frustrations, but there is a purpose behind lament. There is an ultimate purpose in deepening our confidence in God and in His grace. And Job here moves into lament, moves into this section of being filled with these questions of why, which is extremely common when we face suffering, when we face hardships. We want answers. We want to know why these things are happening. How long we'll have to endure them. Will our suffering ever end? Look at Job's wise. He says in verse 11, Why did I not die, be born, and expire? In verse 12, Why did the knees receive me, the breasts that I should nurse? And in verse 16, Why was I not a stillborn as an infant who never sees the light? In these questionings of why, Job was, was showing the life that he's experienced that ultimately led to his sorrow and pain. And so he calls into question his very existence and birth. But notice, he still doesn't blame God. 
He's still not placing the blame upon God or cursing God. He's raising questions of why he was given life. And in all these questions, you can hear Job's thoughts, wondering what the point of his life has ever been if this is the result. And all of us go through different times in our lives where we perhaps have questions about why our life has taken the path it has or why we are where we are. And yet, we can have confidence and trust knowing that God is in control, that God is the author of life, and that God will guide us and lead us, that his path that we are on is the best path, even when it leads through suffering, even when there are hardships and trials that we must endure. And the beauty of Job's story will be the end where we get to see that come to fruition as the Lord provides for him. Any time that we endure suffering, the why questions abound. We wonder why us, why are we facing these hardships? Where is God in the midst of all of our trials? But Job, in this questioning, never asked why the hardships. He never asked why has God allowed this? Why has he lost his children, his servants, and his livestock? Job really just narrows in his questions of why upon his birth and life as a whole. And Job here is in turmoil. He looks at death as being a place of peace because of all that he is going through and enduring. In verse 13, he says, I would have laid down and been at peace. He says, I would have slept and been at rest. In verse 17, he says, the weary are at rest. And in 19, the slave is free from his master. The picture that Job is painting here in his lament is that a freedom from life would have brought about peace and relief. It would have given Job rest from the suffering that he craves. You see, Job doesn't have rest currently. He doesn't have a peace in this moment. He's filled with grief and sorrow and pain, both physical and emotional. And he's in that place of deep mourning. And to him, he craves that peace that he believes would come through death. It can be so difficult when we're in the middle of suffering or hardships to see the other end, to believe that there is hope, that we could be free from the suffering that we are enduring, that there could be relief at some point in our journey. There's an element of awareness that we will never experience that full peace apart from our Creator apart from the Lord God. I love what Augustine says when he says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and the heart of man is restless till it finds its rest in you. You see, that is the only spot where we will find true peace and true rest. No matter what we're going through, no matter what aspect of life we are in, we will not know true peace and rest apart from the Lord. But when we are enduring these hardships, when we are suffering, we can hold on to the truth that there is one who brings about peace. We may not feel it every moment of our journey, but we can know that he is there with us and that he will ultimately give us peace and that there will come a day when our suffering will end. There will come a day when we are free from the hardships that we are enduring. Look at how this day is described in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. The picture that's painted here in Revelation is that picture of eternity with our Heavenly Father. So even when we're enduring pain and suffering, we know that there will come a day we'll be free from that. Even when we are grieving deeply, we know there will come a day when there will be no more grief, when there will be no more suffering, when we will be with God in eternity. And so we can hold on to that hope when we're asking those why questions, when we're enduring our hardships, when we are lamenting to the Lord the suffering that we are going through. One chapter 3, verses 20 through 26 in Job, we see the conclusion of his questions before we're going to move into a section of Scripture, a long section, where we see Job's friends respond to his suffering. But take a look at verse 20. Job concludes by saying, Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures? Who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groaning, groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. In this section, we see that theme of light and death come to the forefront. In verse 20, the question presents itself of why is light given to Job? And as I said earlier, the idea is that light is life. So Job again is just saying, why do I even have life? Why has God given me this life only to be lived in misery and bitterness in the soul? And while we see Job in this section long for death, he never suggests suicide as a means to attaining it. He never says that that's the route that he should take, and that's not the route to take, even in great suffering. I believe that one must recognize that death also must be God's gift, but it's not something that we take into our own hands. Even when one desires it, even when it feels like there is no reason or purpose for your life, you must trust God that He is the author of life, that He numbers our days and that He is in control, that His timing and grace is in all aspects of our life, even in death. And so I love that Job never takes that route he never seeks after ending his life. He may question why he has life, why the Lord gave him this life, but he never suggests ending it. In verse 24, he says, For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. And I was reading, reading commentators on this. It talks about how the Hebrew here is challenging, as the words that we translate sighing and groaning really are not even strong enough to convey what the original language is saying. In his commentary on Job, Francis Anderson suggests that groaning describes the roaring of lions. The impression is given that groans come out of Job's entire body. His whole body is groaning for death, groaning for relief from the suffering and misery. 
And Job closes out the chapter expressing that these hardships that he's dealing with are things that he feared and dreaded, that he is not at peace and he doesn't know rest. Now, I think when we read Job's story, when we experience what he's been through, all of us can agree that we would not expect Job in this moment, after losing all his children, his livestock, after his body being covered in sores, and just having seven days to mourn, that he would already be at ease and at peace and at rest. But I want us to notice that as this chapter concludes, Job has still held true to what God had told Satan. God had told Satan that Job was righteous and upright, that Job would not turn his back on God. And it wasn't just because of all that he had. And as those things get taken away from him, as he has loss after loss after hardship, Job doesn't turn his back on God. In fact, through all of this, Job continues to seek the Lord. And he looks at death as bringing about a sense of hope and peace which we're going to see continue throughout the story of Job. This chapter, chapter 3, is full of suffering, of grief on display as Job bemoans his life. And when I first read it, I wondered how in the world can we apply this text to our lives? How can we pull something out of this gloomy, depressing text so that we can seek to live in line with Scripture? But as I wrestled through it, there's a few things that I believe that we can apply to our lives this morning. And it doesn't mean that they're easy, but I think that they are important. The first is that we would learn how to lament. Lament is not something that we talk a lot about in the church. I grew up in the church, and I did not hear lament talked about hardly ever. And yet, it is important that we learn how to lament so that when we go through those times of suffering, those hardships, we turn to the Lord and we lament to Him. That's where that belongs. That's where that grief should rest and go. When we try to turn from God and hold it upon ourselves, that's when it becomes even more dangerous. Old Testament scholar Klaus Westerman situates the Hebrew poetic material into two categories as he looks at the original Hebrew. He says there's praise and there is lament. He asserts that these two poles, they determine the nature of all speaking to God that we see in Scripture. That psalms that express worship for the good things that God has done are categorized as those praise hymns. But laments are prayers of petition arising out of a need. He says lament is not simply the presentation of a list of complaints, nor merely the expression of sadness over difficult circumstances. Lament in the Bible is a liturgical response to the reality of suffering and engages God in the context of pain and trouble. The hope of lament is that God would respond to human suffering that is wholeheartedly communicated through the lament. And Glenn Pemberton noted that lament constitutes 40% of all of the psalms. So when we look at the psalms, there's 150 psalms, 40% of those have lament in them. And yet, when we look at the church hymnals across denominations, in the Church of Christ, only 13% of the hymns have lament. In the Presbyterian hymnal, only 19. In the Baptist hymnal, only 13. They didn't reference the Church of God, but I would imagine it follows suit. The CCLI that we use for our songs, the licensing in local churches, in their top 100 songs, they determined only five songs would qualify as a lament. See, 
we often don't understand how to lament or don't want to really lament and deal with that suffering in that manner. But if we are to engage with our suffering, if we are to have a healthy theology of suffering, lament must be a part of it. We must allow our suffering to drive us to our Savior who knows firsthand what it means to suffer. And when we lament, we turn to God and we engage with Him in the pain and the trouble that we are experiencing, knowing that we have a hope in Christ. Aubrey Sampson in her book, The Louder Song, Listening for Hope in the Midst of Lament, speaks to the hope that we have when we engage lament. She says, somehow, even in our darkest, most grievous laments, there's hope. Because we don't lament to avoid, we lament to the God who wants our laments. As we lament, we join in the chorus of those who have gone before us, those who have wrestled with suffering's reality and come out not unscathed, but still proclaiming God's goodness. Lament can lead us back to the place of hope, not because lamenting does anything magical, but because God sings a louder song than suffering ever could, a song of resurrection, renewal, restoration, and recreation. So let us know that lament is a part of how we suffer. It's a part of how we engage with God and take our pain and our distress and our suffering to Him, the one who understands it, the one who can empathize with us, and the one who can carry us through it. And part of this lamenting leads me to my second point, is that we must seek to be honest in our prayers. It can be so easy to not take the full weight of what we're going through to the Lord at times. To not feel like he can handle it for whatever reason. And yet there's an importance in being honest in our prayers and being raw with the Lord as we go to prayer. An article entitled, How to Pray When Life Falls Apart. Uh, Vanitha Rinzer speaks to the importance of calling out to God in the midst of suffering, enabling us to embrace his will she says, the relinquishment isn't easy for me. When I keep God at a distance, I can stay detached without expectation. But if I draw near to him and truly believe he can change the situation, I can start to clutch the outcome I want. I may verbalize your will be done, but I'm white-knuckling my own will. God often has to pry my fingers off my desired outcome. Though I felt devastated by his nose as I submit to his will, often with disappointment and tears, he assures me that he is working for my good. I see only part of the picture, but he has a purpose even in his denials. You see, at times we are too concerned with what God will think if we are honest in our prayers. But the irony is that God already knows what is in our hearts. God already knows what is in our minds. So when we are honest with the Lord in our prayers, it opens us up to his working in our lives rather than pushing him away. There isn't anything that you can say to God that he can't handle, that he can't help you journey through, that he can't provide you with the grace to endure. And throughout Scripture, we see this modeled for us through great saints of the faith. I think of Moses and Joshua and Elijah who take their struggles, who take their questions, who take their doubts to God. As they endure hardship, they rest in who God is, even in the midst of their suffering. So we too must strive to be honest in our prayers to the Lord and truly open our entire beings up to him, trusting that he will meet us where we are at. And lastly, I believe that in our suffering, 
we must seek to point people to Jesus who suffered well. You see, we have a Savior who has endured hardships. We have a Savior who knows what it means to suffer. And so as we suffer, we want to point people to Jesus, to use that suffering to point people to him. J. Oswald Sanders tells the story of a missionary who walked barefoot from village to village preaching the gospel in India. His hardships were many, and after a long day of many miles and much discomfort, he came to a certain village and he tried to speak the gospel, but he was driven out of the town and rejected. So he went to the village edge, dejected, laid down under a tree, and slept from exhaustion. When he awoke, people were hovering over him, and the whole town was gathering around him, wanting to hear him speak. The head man of the village explained that they had come to look for him and saw him sleeping. And when they saw his blistered feet, they concluded that he must be a holy man, that they had been evil to reject him. They were sorry and wanted to hear the message that he was willing to suffer so much to bring them. You see, when we are willing to endure suffering, we can use it as an opportunity to point people to Christ. Jesus suffered greatly while on earth. Just think about his last days. He was betrayed by one in his inner circle. He was beaten, ridiculed, tortured, and crucified. And as we too suffer, we can point people to the one who ultimately suffered death so that we could experience life, so that we would know that there is hope no matter what we're going through, no matter what trials we are facing, we can cling to the hope of Jesus Christ, the one who suffered on our behalf. So let me encourage you to remember as you suffer that God is good, that God will not forsake you, that God awaits your prayers of faith, that God's word will not fail you, that God is supremely trustworthy, that God's power is necessary, and that God is a loving Heavenly Father. So this week, as we go out from here, may we remember that no matter what feelings we may experience surrounding our sufferings or hardships, that God is with us, that He is near to us at all times, that He has created us, that He is in control of our lives, and may we find solace in His goodness and trust in His unfailing love always. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for your presence in our lives. Thank you that even when we are uncertain as to why we are enduring what we are enduring, that you are still with us and that you are still good. And so, Lord, help us to fix our eyes upon you, to practice lament when we're going through difficulties, taking our burdens to you where they belong. And Lord, as we do that, may we experience your peace washing over us. Lord, may we in all things fix our eyes upon you, our creator, our savior, and our sustainer. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.